What day is it? What day is it? It is Hump Day right here on the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek. And we have plenty to keep you entertained on this hump day and get you through the longest day of the week, in my opinion. Hi, everybody. Welcome into this episode of the Saints podcast for Wednesday, April 7th. Man, how is it already April? I don't understand. Well, if you read the title of today's episode, you know today's guests are uh, very special, but also kind of have their own thing going on. On today's episode, we have Kelly Gibson, New Orleans native and professional golfer, to preview the 85th Masters. So he will speak with myself and Todd Graffinini. Todd Graffinini knows a little bit more than golf, uh, about golf than I do. I just started getting into golf here recently. So um, excuse my my ignorance on some of these things, but hey, I know football and basketball, um, and that's the most important, right? That's what we care about. Uh, but great conversation with Kelly Gibson as he gives you some insight onto this year's Masters. We also welcome on a Saints legend, LaCharles Bentley, who was recently named the NFL Senior Advisor of Player Performance and Development. Really interesting conversation with LaCharles Bentley, so you definitely want to stick around for that interview. Uh, first things first, let's go ahead and get into our interview with Kelly Gibson. Before I play that interview for you, I must tell you and apologize to you for the background noise on Kelly Gibson's interview. He was in line at Universal Studios. He is on spring breaks with spring break with his kiddos, with his family, um, and he agreed to do the interview, but he was in line at Universal Studios for, I believe, a Harry Potter ride. Uh, so apolog- apologies for the background in, uh, background noise, excuse me, on that interview. Uh, but still, nevertheless, great interview. So let's go ahead and get into that conversation with New Orleans native and professional golfer Kelly Gibson. Kelly, what a time to go to Universal Studios. Of course, got to get that family time when you can. No, uh, I don't blame you on that one. Thanks so much for joining us today. How how are things going out there at Universal? Oh man, the weather's perfect. It's it's incredible. What a what a fun experience this park is. All right, my children are loving it. Um, we're standing in line for Hagrid right now, which is an amazing roller coaster. We got a chance to go on it yesterday, so. Here we are, back at it again today. Kelly, I love how you just said that with so much confidence because moments before we started recording, you were unsure and your family was quick to correct you. So I'm glad you got it good on the record here. (laughs) I'm glad you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I love it. Well, Todd Graffinini is going to be joining us shortly. He is our uh, resident golf expert. Kelly, I'm not going to lie to our listeners here and tell them that I'm a golf expert, that I know everything about golf. I probably got into golf really in the past year and a half, so I can maybe name you six or seven professional golfers who are going to be playing in this Masters. But other than that, um, I'm a relatively amateur golfer here. Um, But can you just, you know, leading up to the Masters, tell us a little bit about what that month of March looks like for the players who are going to participate in the Masters. Well, you know, it's always the the start of spring. Everybody gets excited. You, You work your way from from the West coast to Florida, you make your way through Florida and then everybody starts prepping for the masters. It's, it's a major and it's a bucket list for all those guys that are at that level to try to accomplish. Um, it defines many of their careers if they happen to win it. And the tradition of the masters is, is truly 
uh, unlike any other, you hear him say that, and it, it, it just rings so true that there's so many things about it that are perfect. And if you've ever been, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't been, it's definitely one of the best sporting events in the world. It's, it's a must, must go to event, sort of like the Kentucky Derby or the Super Bowl. The Masters is the premium golf event in my mind. Of all the majors, it's, it's just they do everything right. From from every aspect, once you're on property to to once you exit, it we're we're about to go on the ride uh, at Augusta, and again, there's nothing like Masters Week as you've already talked about. I'm just glad that the Masters is back in April. And look, we had it in November, and it it was good to see at least they were playing golf out on the course, but just the difference because there were no patrons, obviously. And the weather was really not conducive to, as you just talked about, the course being very fast and firm. And, and I think we're really going to see a true test this week. Hopefully, if the rain stays away that they're talking about over the weekend. Yeah, it, it, it's always, you know, touchy with the weather, but the, the Masters always delivers. I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to deliver again this year. You know, the world changed with COVID and how sporting events have been put on and this certainly gives us a little bit of sense of normalcy that we're maybe back on schedule and masters is traditionally the the kind of the starting gate for spring it gets everybody excited in new orleans you know right after the masters we got the zurich classic which we're going to be able to have fans at this year so this is kind of a a key kickoff to maybe some normalcy in our lives um it certainly feels that way right here at Universal. They've got big crowds here. Outside of the mask mandate, we're doing pretty good. How, you know, you've been talking about, you know, the weather, the expectations, the differences in this year's Masters. What are you going to be looking for, Kelly? What What's something that, you know, maybe the average fan isn't going to be looking for that you're going to be looking for this weekend? Maybe it's, you know, different guys' preparation, their approach, you know, something that you're going to be keeping an eye on this weekend. Well, I'd like to see how some of these younger players perform, you know, Justin Thomas is, is certainly a guy that sort of looks like he might be peaking at the right time. Um, Colin Marikawa is a fantastic young player. The, the, the one thing that they normally say is you have to play the Masters a few times before you figure out the angles of the golf course. You know, it, it's a second-shot golf course, and you have to really position yourself well off the tee to be able to go at the pins when you can and play defensive when you need to. And then whoever's putting the best usually is going to be around the leaderboard. So that, keeping an eye on the young players that are, you know, it's a Ryder Cup year. There's going to be a lot of guys that can determine a lot of things in their life if they get hot this week. Then I think the, the big story that everybody wants to see is if, is if Bryson DeChambeau can, you know, do something crazy with his link. And, and, and really change the game in the way that they, they set up golf courses. I think he might struggle a little bit with trying to attack every hole that way um, because they'll, they'll try to set the course up to defend against that, and there's ways to do that. But um, then you have the interesting story of Dustin Johnson. I think he's clearly the number one player in the world, uh, especially when he's putting well. He just has such an athleticism about him. He's got all the shots. He's got length. 
his putter, a little bit bulky at times, but when he's putting good, he's pretty hard to beat. You know, Kelly, you meant the names you mentioned are all names that I'm familiar with. So I feel like I'm off. I'm doing pretty well so far. Uh, but for our listeners who don't know, Kelly, what is what is a second shot golf course mean? What it, what do you mean when you say that for our average listeners? So, for example, like when when you play a certain course like Hilton Head or even the TPC Louisiana, there are lines you can attack off the tee that can shorten a course by 100, 200, 400 yards. Well, if you shorten a course over 18 holes by 400 yards over four days, that's four or five shots if you look at it that way. So when you approach the Masters, there's a high premium, high, high premium on where you land your second shot. You and I could both hit shots into the green. We could be three yards apart, nine feet. You'd be really in a bad spot to two-putt and my ball might kick four feet from the hole. So the, the precision level of controlling your distance is at the utmost at a tournament like this, especially if the greens are firm and fast. So if I'm 150 yards out, that's a wedge for most of these guys. It's an eight iron for me. I've got to land that eight iron in a box that's about six feet wide and three yards long. So six foot by nine feet that's a pretty high premium and now you have to judge your lie your adrenaline the wind how's your heart beating how are you feeling are you are you aggressive mode or are you conservative mode what are you feeling like you know is it time to, to strike and or is it time to lay back and, and wait for a better opportunity and that is attacking a golf course with your second shot kind of like pitching a baseball Todd probably can help me here on this but a pitcher needs to know when to attack some guys just want to go out there and throw strikes all day long that doesn't always work you got to throw some off stuff you know and in golf it's the same way you can't always attack because a golf course like Augusta if you attack and miss you're going to pay the price well, as a former as a former pitcher, Kelly, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, pitching is simply keeping the hitter off balance. If you really want to break it down to its simplest form, so I know that's what they want to do at Augusta National. I want to go back to what you were talking about with Bryson DeChambeau, because it really is fascinating to watch him try to attack this golf course the way he wants to, and. I'm watching Golf Channel yesterday, and they showed him on the range, and he's basically swinging as hard as he possibly can. Uh, I saw him make about, uh, I saw him hit about 15 drivers, and my and my back was hurting uh, just watching him <laughs> swing the club. But the the thing about it is, and you talked about it, if the greens are playing that the way I know they want them to, firm and fast, he could drive the ball as far as he as he wants to. But if he's not in that six, eight-foot box, as you talked about, when he's hitting that approach shot, it's really not going to matter. Uh, I just – I don't know if he's ever going to try to cut the corner on 13. I know that's going to be uh, – would be fun to watch. But, but uh, again, if they set the course up the way I think that they're going to try to, it's going to be really interesting to see how he's going to try to attack it. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're certainly not going to want him to make a mockery of the golf course. You know, they're not going to want him hitting 400 yard drives, but a hole like number one, I don't think there's really anything they can do there. Right. Hole like number two, if he can shape his, his long ball 
enough. They, they, you know, he's going to hit a medium iron in, like a seven, eight iron in. Hole number three, he can almost hit an iron on that green, if not a three iron, the way he hits it. But if he misses the three iron in a certain spot, Todd, he's going to struggle to make four or five because he could just miss it in a spot where he's going to chip it from one side of the green to the other. However, if he gets hot, he could throw up a low round. But, you know, you look at him statistically, he's pretty good putty, like, on the stat sheet. When you look at him in person, it looks a little bit off. So, he, he is that kind of player. Nothing about him is normal. Right. You know, he, he certainly has, has done it his way. You can't deny his success. He won the U.S. Open. I thought yesterday almost – I watched it on Twitter last night, and – it it looked like he was doing a workout almost, you know, exactly. like he's out there with a trainer. And I'm good friends with BJ, and BJ and I used to go at it on the driving range to see who could hit it the longest. And he's a lot bigger guy than me. And he used to love it when I would. I don't want to say I was in the league, but I, I was in the top five for distance off the tee. And I used to believe that the harder I swung, as long as I could match the face up at impact the better it would be for me. And I, I always felt like the next game changer was going to be somebody like Dustin Johnson, who's six foot five and swings with maximum speed. Like that's going to change the game. And here we are, you know, 20 years later, it's happening. Wait, you're telling me that the, the harder you hit the ball, the better you're, it doesn't mean you're better. If you hit the ball harder, I thought that that was the whole point of golf. What the heck? You don't know what, <laughs> no. don't know what direction it's going to go, though. That's the problem. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's my problem. you got to match. You, <laughs> got it, yeah. got it. If you got hit it, it, if you hit it hard in the hard in the trees, like I did a lot of times, it's not so good. <laughs> no, and look, Kelly, and, and thanks for your time. I, just one further point. I just saw. I literally just saw the graphic on Golf Channel. Of course, I'm watching live from the Masters right now, and the last what's going back to 2015 when Jordan Spieth won. Up through last year when Dustin Johnson won, the everyone who won the highest uh, as far as percentage, the, the top driving was sixth in the tournament. Yeah. So yeah, you don't have to be first in driving to win the Masters, I guess yeah. is the bottom line. No, you, you, you have to be below the hole when you need to be below the hole you need to be left of the hole when you need to be left of the hole you can't make any mental mistakes you've got to be pinking at the right time the adrenaline rush at that golf course is a little bit like any other in the fact that the back nine lends itself for being aggressive once you get past number 12 you can just put the pedal down on 13 and 15 and 16 they always give you an accessible pin so that run Guys, guys that study it, and I've studied it my whole life, know that there's something magical usually happens the last nine holes of the tournament. So your heartbeat better be in shape or it'll get away from you as fast as you can take it. You know, it's kind of like it's like a two-minute drill in football. You either got it or you don't, and you better get it because it'll disappear as fast as it'll show up. All right, Kelly. Well, last question before we let you go. This one's for you and Todd. If you had to guess the 85th winner of the Masters, who is it? Y'all do this to me every time. <laughs> hey, didn't I say Dustin Johnson last year? You did. 
did. We did the podcast last year in November. Okay, so here we're going to go. I'm going to go with Justin Thomas this year. Justin Thomas. Southern guy. All right. Yep. Kelly, well, go if, with he him. Wins, if he wins, you're our resident golf expert. So now for every golf yeah. season, you're going to have to call in and give us your guess. Todd, who you have? All right, well, uh, you know, Phil's my guy, fellow lefty. He's won it three times. And, you know, Augusta is a left-hander's golf course. You know that, Kelly Gibson. You know that. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Bubba, uh, Bubba and Phil exactly. have proven that. Okay, Mike now, yep. I, I think, though – Justin Thomas was my second pick, but I think John Rahm's going to win it. I think I think it's John Rahm's time, and uh, they just you know, had they just had a little uh, little baby, and I think that kind of cleared his head, and I think he's gonna I think he's ready to go. All right, that's a big one. That's a big one. Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah, Kelly, enjoy we'll have to your bet lunch on that one. Ride. No, enjoy <laughs> your Hackford ride. Enjoy Universal. Enjoy your family. Go have some fun. We appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for coming on. I hope to get on with you guys during the Zurich class. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks, Kelly. Now welcoming on the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek. We have Saints legend with Charles Bentley joining us. He played center and right guard with the Saints from 2002 to 2005. He was a Saints draft pick in 2002. He was selected to the Pro Bowl in 2003 and 2005, and he has recently been named the NFL Senior Advisor of Player for Performance and Development. Well, Charles, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. But Charles Bentley, I mean, for Saints fans who haven't kept up, who don't know you, who are coming in from all walks of life, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been up to since your time, uh, since you've played football. Oh, my God. I've been all over the <laughs> place. Uh, I think the biggest thing that, you know, I've been living in, the biggest world I've been living in is the entrepreneurial world. Uh, when I left the game, uh, I immediately started dabbling in, some entrepreneurial things. And, you know, I think unlike a lot of former players, I kind of tried to live in my own world where I was very familiar. Mm. So I opened a training center in Cleveland, Ohio, which was at that, at that time, Offensive Line Academy. And it was the, the first true brick and mortar facility that was dedicated solely to working with offensive line athletes. And as that kind of evolved and grew and expanded, I uh, started developing football equipment I ended up with a couple of patents on that type of stuff, which, you know, still to this day kind of surprises me. Yeah. And I was able to actually write a couple of books. Uh, boy, you name it. I've all, it's all kind of lived and, you know, revolved around the world of sports performance development and just dealing with the game of football, which has truly been a blessing. I have never, as I like to say, worked a true day in my life because I wake up every day and I get to serve the game and serve the people inside of it. You know, Charles, you see a lot of former athletes going into kind of the player performance because it's something they know, something they're familiar with. Is this something that has been a passion of yours since you played? Like, when did that kind of passion for player performance, player development start for you? I've always been, I guess you can say, the the weight room junkie, you know, especially in high school. <clears throat> I started playing football late. I didn't start until my true ninth grade year is when I really first started to experience the game of football. So I was a bit behind as it related to development. 
So I figured that the only way that I could catch up was try to get stronger than everyone else because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> and that was always my, my mindset as I developed my, myself and my skill set uh, as a player. And I just really enjoyed the work and the training. And I wasn't a kid that loved practice or even truly loved the game per se. Mm -hmm. I just loved the performance and the development side and the process of each and every week. That's what I loved. So it wasn't really until um, my latter of my career dealing with some injuries and some subsequent uh, issues from a staph infection that, you know, as an athlete, when you have what you have, you don't really understand what you have when you have it. Right. It's more so when you lose it that you begin to appreciate, oh, this is what made me unique as a player. This is what allowed me to express myself uh, as a player. So at that point in time, I spent so much energy trying to recapture those skills and traits that I had as a player. And it took me down so many different rabbit holes as it related to performance and human performance. And I was able to learn so much and to go out and, and earn different accreditations and certificates and really dive into the human performance side, honestly, all with the intent and selfishly to get myself back to a level where I can perform uh, back in the game. Obviously, that did not happen. So that itch sort of just stayed with me. Mm -hmm. That drive stayed with me. And I said, you know what? I've learned some new things. I've developed a different type of passion. And that's where this road is. That road kind of opened itself up to me. Well, well, Charles, you can tell in just that answer how how passionate you are about that. How, this is... This is a different generation. I mean, 2003 to 2005, but this is a different generation of athletes. They, they think of things a different way. They approach the game a different way. Their mentality is different. There's more of a focus on mental health. How do you pour that passion that you have for performance into, uh, I don't want to say children, but you know, from those starting ages up until the point that they're professional athletes, how do you pour that enthusiasm into them? Well, that is a great question. Right now, I think with so many young athletes, when I say young, I include NFL players as well. Right. I'm not that old, but I'm not, you know, you know, that far from being in that age group. Listen, we'll, we'll, we'll have our listeners do the math. It's okay. Let's it's figure out. Let's say figure it. out. It's, it's, it's fine. You know, but I think the biggest thing for me is this, is that I've had to shift that mindset away from, I think a lot of us in this older generation, we get caught in this mindset of, you know, kids aren't what they used to be. Uh, the game isn't what it used to be. And that is all well and true. But I would also like to add the fact that kids today are more equipped to survive in the world of today. So for example, with the skill sets and my mentality and how I approach life and the, the things around me uh, that I was influenced by, I wouldn't have been prepared to exist in today's world. I wouldn't have been okay as a player going back to my locker, opening up my Twitter account and having thousands of messages about how horribly I played. Yeah. I couldn't have managed that. But kids today, they're growing up in this world, so they're understanding how to manage their existence a lot differently than I had to. So I believe that to answer your question, the biggest shift that I've had to make is the fact that, you know, the good old days, they were the good old days back then, but you have to be willing to adapt and evolve as a teacher. And I would also say as a parent in today's world and realize that yes, kids may not have may not be what they used to be. The game may not be what it used to be. And it's never going to go back to being that. But in order to for us in our generation to truly provide the 
expertise, and I guess you can call it the wisdom that we're able to pull from those experiences in order to give it to today's generation, we have to humble ourselves first and acknowledge that, yes, they're different, but their difference is good. But in terms of the way we live our lives in the world that we live in and how to become successful as human beings, those principles never change. So the principles that made Dermani Dawson one of, if not the greatest center to ever play, well, maybe Dwight Stevenson, that's arguable, whatever. But the <laughs> principle that makes greatness what it is, those principles still apply. But it's us as leaders and teachers, and which was given to me, to be willing to adapt in order to give those principles in a context that kids today can understand and appreciate. Does it ever just blow your mind how much social media impacts athletes? I mean, you, you talk about, you know, dealing with them every day and not just from a performance and development standpoint, but you're also serving as a mentor to a lot of these, um, you know, young people, students, NFL players, things like that. Does it ever just blow your mind to think about how much of an impact social media has? I'll be honest. I would say it's, yes, it's, uh, it's mind blowing, but I, I'd say it's also a bit scary. Mm. It's scary to understand uh, and try to empathize with where these guys are in their world. It's easy for me to say, oh, don't let outside influences influence you. Yeah. Just turn that stuff off. Again, that's not the world that they're in. So what you try to do is you try to give them the tools and the coping mechanisms and allow them to not just survive, but to thrive in their current environment. And it still goes back to principles, principles in performance and principles of how to become a successful person. But yes, it is mind blowing to uh, see how it's how impactful it truly is. But at the same time, I empathize. I empathize with the kids. I empathize with athletes because, yeah, it's easy for me to say, oh, don't worry about your three-star ranking. Well, you know what? Those stars matter to those kids. And we can't be so dismissive. Just say, don't worry about it. Let's teach them how to manage and work themselves through it. All right. So that goes right into your new title, right? NFL Senior Advisor of Player Performance and Development. What exactly does that mean? What are your new responsibilities? How is your how is your life going to change with this new responsibility? How is my life going to change? Well, I think the biggest change that has happened in my life is my LinkedIn inbox is full. Nice. Uh, that's that is a huge goal. You have no idea how hard LinkedIn is to maintain. So shout out to you. I just go with the mindset of accepting everybody. That is what I do on LinkedIn. Everyone's my friend. <laughs> Everyone's your friend on LinkedIn. Man, I tell you what, I've gained a lot of new friends on LinkedIn. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I think the the biggest shift in my life, um, I think time management is one shift. And I would also go with learning how to be on a team again and taking a more collaborative approach gotcha. to, to working through different strategies and ideas and uh, to ultimately try to get to achieving what the goal is. And there's one thing that um, uh, Troy Vincent really has educated and taught me uh, to embrace is no ownership. No one owns anything. 
It's about the journey. It's about the execution. And these are all team wins. And as a former athlete, I think you have that mindset and it's easier to adapt to that mindset, especially being a former offensive lineman, that, hey, I'm only as good as my right tackle or my center or my left guard. You're only as good as your weakest link in the chain. And I think for me, that's been a, a unique skill set to have to adapt to again, because as an entrepreneur, it's sink or swim on your own. So you have to figure things out on the fly when you have a staff and you have people depending on you. You have to make rapid decisions that are going to be impactful. But in this sense now, it's just adapting to that collaborative world again and allow myself to learn and be humble enough to know that I don't know everything. I definitely don't understand everything about the inner workings of the National Football League, but I'm learning. And I know that I can add value in certain places, but there are other things in, in, in this situation, this journey that I have to sometimes take a step back and just defer to the experts and continue to allow myself to learn. But the day-to-day -day aspect of it is the biggest aspect right now is continuing to work on and evolve the way to play. Uh, that right now has been something I've worked on for the last couple of years behind the scenes with operations. You know, having someone like Tracy Perlman and Troy Vincent and Roman Open, you know, that you're working with has been interesting within itself because they're such high level experts in their fields. And being able to add value to that world uh, has been a journey and it's been interesting and fun. But the way to play right now is this living, breathing organism. And what's so unique to me, you know, as an athlete, you live in this world where everything is just so black and white. But when you start talking about data and the way that technology has evolved our understanding of the game, it gives a very unique roadmap and allow us to continue to evolve the way to play in a sense that the data always is evolving. And you have to stay adaptable as the data reveals what that evolution is going to ultimately be. And not allow yourself to get stuck in this world of this is what it needs to be and must be. No, stay adaptable. And that's been another hurdle that you have to get uh, over, I guess you can say, in a sense that, you know, as a former player, you'd like to believe that you've done it, you get it, you know everything. No, you don't. You're always learning. And as long as you can stay in that learning mentality, it gives us the best chance to all achieve the goals we're trying to achieve, which is at the end of the day, to remove as much unnecessary risk from the game as possible. All right, I feel like I have, I have a million follow-up questions, but I'm gonna stick with two. So for our listeners who don't know, what does this mean? Do you still have your own organization? Are you still coaching athletes one-on-one? -on -one? Are you strictly in the league office helping with the league? Like, what does that look like for you? Oh, I stay at home. <laughs> <laughs> work from home. We're all working from home. <laughs> no, I'm able to still manage my day-to-day -day, uh, in terms of my businesses. You know, you know that's something right now in my life that I'm not ready to let go. It's, yeah. you know, you, you grow something up from nothing. You know, it's your baby and you don't want to see your baby go off to college. Uh, you can have other ones, but you still love that baby. And right now. I know I, you have a daughter. It's coming. I'm yeah, that, that, well, she's it's coming. It's coming. I'm, between, I'm sure to prepare you. Between us and nobody else, obviously, you know, she's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, the businesses and the things that we're doing and what, what's so unique is that doing what I'm continuing to do and I've built over the years, it allows me to be more effective with what I'm doing now with the league. It allows me to now have a think tank of people around me that can continue to add value to me, uh, that allows me and challenges me to grow, where at that point in time, I can take these understandings that I've developed over the years and continue to get challenged on each and every day and apply it 
to what I'm doing now with the National Football League. You know, you're such a unique position where every day, you know, right now we have 25, 30 athletes that we work with that are all NFL players. You know, that is a unique locker room and, and, and uh, I guess you could say opportunity to examine each and every day what the game, what's going on inside of our game and be able to receive that type of feedback and input from guys that are out there every single day. It's just invaluable. So how do you, and this is my last question before we let you go, but how do you find the balance of looking at the data, looking at the analytics, understanding them and applying them, but also knowing what it feels like to be a player and having players giving you that feedback and finding the balance of, we should make this decision based on data, but we also are getting feedback from players that maybe this isn't the right way to approach it. You know, that is a tremendous question. And I think that the, the answer that I can give you on that is humility. Mm. Uh, understanding that, yes, my experiences as an athlete, I, I can't think through a face mask anymore. Mm. And our job as teachers, as mentors, as, you know, the, the elder statesmen, so to speak, inside the game, we have to understand that athletes only know what they know. And it isn't to diminish their understanding, but when you're inside the game, you have a very unique perspective and that perspective allows you to survive and thrive in your world. But as it relates to evolving the game, I think at times you have to disconnect from your understanding and your experiences as an athlete, because if you don't, you immediately go back to what makes me comfortable. Oh, Cut block, this is great. We should be allowed to do that. No, we should get into the open field and have you know players throwing their helmets at each other's knees because that's makes it, that's toughness. And that's what the game is all about. And you get this rah-rah mentality. It's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not sustainable. And if it's really about evolving the game and really doing what's best for the player, again, I go back to that parenting uh, aspect. I have to make my daughter eat her vegetables. Although she's my favorite, because she's your favorite she goes kicking and screaming and it bothers me to have (laughs) her go through that but i know it's for her in her best interest right it's the same thing with the evolution of the game yes you want the feedback from the players you want their understanding and their, their, their sentiment of where they are but at the same time you have to be able to disconnect and understand that it's not about today it's about tomorrow and the bigger picture All right, that's Saints legend LaCharles Bentley, newest NFL senior advisor of player performance and development. LaCharles, we appreciate your time so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. And go Saints. Okay, Saints fans, that'll do it for today's episode of the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek. Hopefully you feel ready for the Masters. You know what to keep an eye on. And you got some uh, insight from a Saints legend on some things that he will be keeping an eye on uh, from a league level um, going forward to player safety, player personnel, all that good stuff. So two really interesting interviews today on the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek. Of course, we will keep them coming. We will also keep you prepared with everything you need to know as we approach the 2021 NFL draft here at the end of the month. We will keep you up to date with everything you need to know on your Saints app or on NewOrleansSaints.com. So make sure you're checking those out frequently. Turn your notifications on. That is the best and the easiest way to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the black and gold. All right, for Caroline Gonzalez, Kelly Gibson, Todd Graffinini, LaCharles Bentley, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the New Orleans Saints podcast 
presented by Sydney.